We are talking about the kind of late 1990s, early 2000s. There were a lot of hospital closures within communities that we would generally kind of say had lots of inequalities anyway. People were being rehoused. Rather than seeing the person, we hear the label and, and we respond to that often enough in a way that's not helpful. Welcome to Reclaiming Our Heritage, a mental health foundation podcast inspired by its two-year oral history project supported by the National Lottery Heritage Fund. The project's aim is to record and preserve the spoken testimonies of the mental health community between the 1950s and the early 2000s. The full interviews by these contributors and others are available in the Reclaiming Our Heritage archive on the Scottish Mental Health Arts Festival website. My name is Helena Rafai and in each episode I will explore themes and these will be further discussed by a professional guest. The Reclaiming Our Heritage project is funded by a number of donors including an Our Heritage grant from the National Lottery Heritage Fund. On this episode, we'll be exploring the subject of mental health over generations and hearing from different voices on this theme from the Reclaiming Our Heritage archive. We'll also be exploring themes of creativity and the arts, because the thing that ties all these voices together is their involvement in mental health and the arts. Our expert on this episode is Sean McCann. Uh, could you please introduce yourself to us and tell us what you do? Yeah, sure. So um, my name's Sean McCann. I'm a cognitive behavioural psychotherapist. I work in the main at Strathclyde University um, and their counselling team. I work in a, a specific team that f- the focus is working with suicidality and students who we've identified who are the, at the most risk of, of harm. In the past, I've worked uh, in a residential treatment centre treating veterans with PTSD and complex PTSD and uh, in substance misuse services is treating long-term addictive behaviour. I also teach as well, so I lecture at the OU on counselling and mental health. Just on the basis of of this subject of mental health over generations, you and I had a conversation before starting this podcast whereby you mentioned that the theme of the episode was very close to your heart. Can you tell me why that is? When I was younger, I was even before I met you, which seems many, many, many moons ago. But when I was younger, I was a musician. Um, I used to play in bands. Uh, my first degree was in music. Uh, I moved to London when I was 19, chasing the chasing the dream. I developed an addiction for drugs and alcohol. Not that I noticed at the time, you know, uh, because in the industry that we were working, it was fairly prevalent. You know, a lot of the behaviour that I was able to engage with seemed abnormal probably to most people, but certainly not out with the realms of what was going 
going on for everybody else. And uh, for, for, for well over a decade, I really struggled with my mental health and with addiction. I finally managed to get some treatment from the late my late 20s into my early 30s through going to therapy. And that was around about the same time that we met. We met, um, we met actually uh, at the period of my life where I stopped drinking and drugging and started looking after myself better. And I realised at that time that, that not only like was my behaviour like unacceptable to a lot of people, but it was mostly unacceptable to me. And I also noticed that there was a, a number of people who I knew as friends, musicians, artists, writers, who um, on the face of it seemed to be struggling the way I had. But at that point, uh, I just wanted to look after myself and I, and I managed to, to get the help that I needed at the right time from really good professionals, which uh, ultimately led me into my current career. I went back to school and retrained and and, and I ended up becoming a, th- a therapist. Which is an incredible story. And it, it seems to be one that's becoming more and more prevalent. I want to get on to the three voices that we have on this episode. And for listeners' benefit, you and I have had the list, the, we've had the chance to listen to these clips um, that we have on this episode. I've given you a bit of background on each of our speakers. And I just want to begin with Hugh, if that's okay. Hugh was interviewed by volunteer Isabel for a Reclaiming Our Heritage project. And for our listeners, just to give a bit of background on Hugh, he was born in 1954, grew up in London and moved to Scotland at the age of 17. In his early professional career, he was a nursing assistant at Argyll and Butte Psychiatric Hospital in Gilped, located in Argyll, and then actually moved into forestry and self-employed gardening. He's also a published writer and Hugh voluntarily established the Easy Club, which offers music sessions for people with disabilities, learning difficulties, mental health issues, isolation and more. So let's listen to the clip of Hugh and Isabel. How was mental health viewed? Oh, very differently. I mean, I mean, really, really differently. Uh, the, the psychiatric hospital, I said, had 500 when I started working there, didn't even been above that before that, apparently. But um, uh, and I did a quite a during my later time there, did quite a study into the history of the whole hospital. And I know that when it was called an asylum, and when it was created in the Victorian era and things, there was an awful lot of well-meaning people about why it was done. Um, and there would have always been good nursing and good care. But I mean, there were, it was there was far too many people in there and the, the classic thing of young lasses being put in there because they'd been they'd had a child uh, out of wedlock and things and, and masses and people in there because of learning difficulties or injury that was not what we really call psychiatric problems and I saw a lot of it and quite honestly I'll be frank about it when I worked in the 70s I saw cruelty as well from the nursing staff to the patients. Without a doubt, I saw the opposite, but I did see cruelty and um, great ignorance. And and I'm, I'm very, still very sceptical about the, the very high use of medication. I try, try to learn, you know, that when it's good, it's good. But um, I just, it has all improved a lot. Obviously, things are much more out in the public eye. There are psychiatrists, psychiatrists uh, talk of a whole range of therapies now and staff are much more uh, better trained in the right uh, person-centered approach and i don't think and a lot of the hospitals have shut or shrunken and that's that's overall good and there's an awful lot of good 
good care in the community in spite of difficulties, but there is. So it's, it's, it, yes, it's got, it's got better. There are, there's, there's a different kind of, you know, I, I'm talking about people who have been, you know, particular examples of schizophrenia who are, and then become totally institutionalized. Well, I mean, there's going to be, there's going to be less of that in a sense, but, but there are, there are, there are wider, obviously, uh, threats to mental health of the wider community in modern society. But then, there's lots of good arts out there, so that's got help. Do you feel there was an arts and mental health community existing at the time that you started working? Oh, no, I didn't. I, I wasn't aware of it. I mean, of course there would be things, and things I've learned since, that um, the concept is not brand new by any means. It's the same as the thing I've been working in, uh, with mental health in, out in nature, and, and I wasn't the first to see this kind of thing it's been there but I wasn't as a, as a in my early employment young I did wasn't really aware of any 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 kind of movement in that way um, and as I say I go back to beginning this psychiatrist a very fine gentleman he was local man trying to encourage creative painting and was turned down I mean the psychiatrist did not have the last say in the way place was managed it isn't the same kind of management as it as has uh, often been since, but there there was management that was not doctors and psychiatrists, and and this one just stuck his neck out, saying that there should be more freeform painting, and was not able to achieve make mm. that happen in in the seventies, incredibly. Mm. So I mean, obviously, a lot of my my thing is is coloured by you know institution, even though it's all shut now. But um, I still get I still want and. Uh, get frustrated, a bit of a strong word, but I know there are still people in the communities of Argyle, Argyle and Butte, who are not accessing the potential local arts that they could be. Some of them just don't want to, but some of them just are not aware of it or are too uh, shy to come forward and get, get involved, and I, that's what I would like to see more of that there are more of these people some of whom have been in you know uh, mental health services for a long time but would benefit if they got into more community arts and so on sean just immediate reactions to that clip was there anything that stood out immediately for you Depressingly, like Hugh's experience is a fairly common one, fairly typical one of people who worked in the asylum and and or wrote about the the asylum system in the UK. The asylum system idea was actually an improvement on the treatment that went beforehand and went up until the, the mid 1700s. If you were poor, then you would get locked up. If your behaviour seemed in any way unusual, you could you could get locked up. Poor houses, pauper lunatics, and they would all, all obviously be workhouses. People would just be put to work. So it was a kind of indentured sort of system. The asylum system was brought in because there was this theory that rather than looking at people having a a moral deficit is the reason why they are poor. Maybe people could have illnesses in the mind and that they might be treatable. The best way to treat it would be to basically create an environment and an atmosphere that was different and, and helpful for these people. And that and that was 
building big houses in the country where there's space, where people would be given the time to go for walks in nature, to breathe, to paint. So it was a vast improvement on the, the kind of treatments that had went before. But unfortunately, um, once the Asylums Act came into being, very quickly the asylums filled up with people. And a lot of the time it would still be the same kind of people that would be poorly treated in the past. And then throughout the sort of 1800s and, and, and throughout the, the first half of the last century, um, uh, you ended up with no money, poorly trained staff, overworked, you know, like, like uh, the ratio of staff to, to patients would be like astronomical, you know, like completely unsafe. So nobody was getting treatment. The, 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 the original idea just became sort of bastardised and turned into something awful. And Hugh recognises that that's, that's where he ended up. What do you feel has actually improved now compared to what you've just been talking about then? One of the things that Hugh mentions there is really interesting. Progress maybe moves slowly in some unusual ways because like, in that respect, we are still a, a, a country that probably doesn't invest enough, in my opinion, in looking after people, both physically and mentally, you know, like, like just health is health. And, and, and we probably don't invest as much in that uh, as, as we could or should. But in the attitude towards mental ill health like um, there's a really good TED talk a really famous TED talk by a, a schizophrenic uh, uh, lady uh, who's a psychologist called Eleanor Longdon um, like she probably wouldn't identify the way I just named her but like it is absolutely fantastic she talked I think it's called The Voices in My Head and she talks she was treated the way um, Hugh described through people like Ellender Longden talking about um, the voices in her head and normalising that, that it's okay for some people to experience thoughts in a different way, in a neuro-atypical way. A lot of times if people access services now, they would be treated differently. So I think that there is progress. It's always qualified, you know, that some people will not experience it, unfortunately, because it isn't, it isn't uniform. Most definitely. Hugh... Uh, mentioned obviously we've spoken about the easy club that he formed and it was at the Argyle and Butte hospital and it contains actually what I, I hadn't mentioned a number of former patients and volunteers and the main aim is to get the audience involved with their voices and various instruments have you seen more of these activities being introduced to try and support mental health over your time in this field a hundred percent I think there's there's but a growing acknowledgement as a psychotherapist, I'm well aware of the limitations of what I can do for people. And the thing is, my perspective on how I can help someone is often widely, wildly different than the person that's coming to meet me because they often have this idea that they're going to get therapy and it's going to fix them in some way. But actually, like the, the, the idea is that we, we have it within ourselves, but sometimes we will need help to unlock that potential um, to, to gain a better perspective or to make the, the changes in our life that will be useful for us. A wide evidence base and a, and a wide acknowledgement that a holistic approach to mental health is probably way more effective than basically the, the, this kind of westernised model of just diagnosis. Recovery is a journey. And uh, how can you support recovery? Well, you can basically support it through medication. You can support it through treatment and treatment centres, but you can also support it through community. You can support it through peers. And then if you look at the wider thing, in the service that I used to work in uh, treating uh, PTSD, we had an art therapist on staff um, who would um, work with clay, would um, teach people how to paint, would use photography, would use walking in nature and mindfulness in nature in order to treat some of the symptoms of uh, PTSD. Those 
those type of things, recovery, community approaches, peer approaches, using art, using music therapy, using dog therapy, sometimes using horse therapy with some um with with some of the veterans that we were working with. All these things have been shown to be as effective and in some cases more effective than classical give you drugs and let's talk about what's happened in the past which is a gross oversimplification of what i do like but it just highlights the point that when someone comes to me and my current role in the university and they're saying that they're really affected by anxiety and they describe panic then a very small part of what we will do with them next will be talking about what's brought them here you know what what the presenting issues are what kind of things they've got going on like a lot of what we're going to do is going to focus on the body focus on the context you know what have you got going on in your life um is it any wonder that you're panicking just now with this stress that you're under and the pressure that you're feeling what other things can we do that can help how are you looking after yourself are you eating right are you sleeping right are you exercising um are you doing anything for fun you used to game you don't game anymore you used to go out you don't do that anymore you used to dance you don't do that anymore how can we start basically making your life look more like the kind of life you want to have and rather than just doing bits and pieces by chance actually building it into an actual proactive um, therapeutic intervention you know an actual treatment plan all the evidence would indicate that that kind of approach is is not only like going to be effective it's going to be more fun for the person you know that they're going to life their life for, for someone who is beginning to try more things and able to do more things is going to be more enjoyable you know more beneficial and that seems to be desirable for me as a therapist So I'm now going to introduce everyone to Dougie. He was born in 1954, grew up in Lower Largo. He studied in abundance for a BA in accounting and finance, but it didn't work out and mental illness set in. However, he did go on to complete his degree uh, in later years and went on to become successful. Later, he took voluntary redundancy because he was experiencing mental illness again. Despite being out of work for 20 years, he went on to become an artist, writer and musician. He was in hospital and found this very challenging as drug therapy is not something he he was happy about. And he would be locked in at night because of security, which meant he couldn't do things like meditate. Three times he was distressed. He was pinned down by around four nurses and injected with a sedative, which is also known as Accuphase. Very sadly, Dougie has passed away since the recording of this interview. And so in 1976, was there a particular uh, perspective of mental health or did you not feel that at the time? No, I knew what was happening. My parents didn't know, I didn't know what was happening. I've got a severe mental illness, which they diagnosed two years later. They first of all said it was a schizophrenic and then two years later they said it was a psychotic schizophrenic. And then eventually they said that my diagnosis was bipolar schizoaffective disorder. And they don't talk about that. Nobody talks about that. They're beginning to open up a bit about mindfulness and the meditation and helping people with anxiety and depression. But they don't talk about schizophrenia or mood disturbances. There are some bipolar groups for people with manic depression, which I, I believe they don't use that expression anymore. And there are there are songs that musicians have written, like Jimi Hendrix wrote one. And uh, yeah. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to say, or anything you feel we haven't discussed that you'd like to add? Uh, spirituality. 
or the way things come from within, and it depends on what kind of spiritual outlook you have, as to what kind of materials you produce, and what kind of songs you sing. And some of my artwork is related to the Brahmakumari World Spiritual University, where I'm a student, I've been a student for 40 years. Almost as long as I've been mentally ill, I've been doing meditation and studying spiritual knowledge. And it's a sort of half and half. It influences everything I do. From what kind of food I eat, when I sleep, and the kind of artwork that I do. So I think it's important to have a spiritual aspect to to art and also a spiritual aspect to mental health because they're now exploring mindfulness as a way of assisting people with their their mental difficulties and there are things above that like transcendental meditation was a sort of start point and mindfulness is a step up from that. And Raja Yoga is a step up from that. It's the highest form of yoga or meditation that you can do. Raja means king and yoga means union. So Raja Yoga means the highest yoga. It will transform you into being a royal person. And that's the aim, to be a royal person like Lakshmi and Narayan, the first empress empress of the golden age, which may happen or will happen quite shortly. Om Shanti. I just want to talk about Acuface to start off with, Sean, if that's okay. Um, Have you spoken to other people that have experienced that? Different formats or different forms, but but similar experiences. Like the he, he must have had elements of psychosis and all that got that diagnosis. So often people uh, who experience psychosis are the, the 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 people that practitioners are often the most afraid of. You know, um, uh, because psychosis is um, this big scary thing. You know, um, uh, we all have thoughts and we all have inner dialogue, and some people's inner dialogue can become external and seem like another person. But um, psychosis um, can can often be something. I mean, you only have to look at the um, how the, the police have, have treated people with psychosis in the in the past. Some really f- famous cases. It's something that causes fear. So often uh, the 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 first response to uh, an episode of extreme psychosis would be that someone be, would be restrained in some way, and often um, uh, uh, drugs would be administered without their permission um often unfortunately depending on what type of episode uh, the person is experiencing it uh, uh, there's a good rationale for doing it you know sometimes uh, the, the the rationale is that this is designed to keep the person safe but the context is is the key and, and sometimes there may be other ways to deal with the person in that situation Dougie touches on it there and certainly from my perspective anxiety, depression and panic are things that are becoming far more normalised in conversation but people are still approaching with trepidation conversations surrounding schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, schizoaffective disorder and more 
Firstly, I want to ask you, do you feel that that's more to do with the stigma attached to it? Oh, 100%. Stigma and fear, you know. Um, each individual would need to basically answer for themselves as to what their reaction would be. But certainly I've worked with other professionals who um, and services who, when you mention that someone like has psychosis, they visibly withdraw, you know, like um, they would say things like, oh, that's too complex for our service, you know, it shouldn't, you, you shouldn't be working with him or, or we shouldn't be seeing that type of presentation here because our service isn't set up to work with that. The reason why the person would be coming to our service was because maybe they had a drink problem or maybe they um, they were experiencing sort of traumatic re-experiencing that was causing them to stay indoors or, like you know, affecting their life, life quite profoundly. There is a fear element. Historically, people uh, who experience psychosis, I think, have been linked with violence, maybe, you know, and I don't think the, the media has been helpful in that. You know, there's loads of portrayals in the media of people um, experiencing and psychosis that have been really unhelpful and so I think we have a culture where we accept things like we've come to a place where because it's more common to talk about it people accept anxiety they accept depression they accept substance misuse they accept agoraphobia and panic you know we're okay talking about these things but when it comes to the big things like schizophrenia bipolar like stuff that maybe is linked to and and this is is maybe something that's also linked to to um, people who are neuroatypical, you know, people who have, are, are on the autistic spectrum, the portrayals that, that historically that, that, that people on the autistic spectrum have had in the media tend to be the most extreme versions. And that's often not what people present with. So um, rather than seeing the person, we hear the label and, and we respond to that often enough in a way that's not helpful. Yeah. One of the things that I really wanted to include in this was Dougie talking about spirituality and meditation because I do feel that it's something that's become more prevalent. I remember when people would even describe to me negatively about it and again in the media they can be very negative um, and so on but there's millions of apps now, there's gurus, there's classes. How have you seen that evolve over time? It's absolutely incredible. It's hard for me not to be enthusiastic about it. As someone who was brought up uh, with a specific sort of religion and, and uh, didn't feel any affinity to it and, and don't really have any supernatural beliefs. So um, I was always taught that sort of spirituality was linked to religion. But actually, once you have stood in a tiny room in a cafe in Falkirk doing Tai Chi with, uh, with 10 or 12 like heroin addicts you don't understand what spirituality is you know spirituality is as Dougie described I mean it's linked to that sort of Zen Buddhist idea that um, if your cup is full then you have no more room to learn and, and if we see therapy as a journey and, and see like sort of life as, as a journey then that spiritual aspect is a journey as well it's about that voyage of self-discovery but also about discovering who we are in this place that we are whether it be in a room with another couple of people or whether it be in the wider communities and the different groups of people that, that we exist in by the time I finished working in substance misuse services I would see people coming out of a, an AA meeting and going straight into a meditation session now that would have been unheard of 30, 40 years ago, like a bunch of guys like sort of in Govan leaving uh, an AA meeting and going in and meditating for half an hour or 40 minutes, you know, or doing a guided discovery. There's, there's your health, there's your physical health, there's your re relational health, but then there's your spiritual health. And it's this idea that if we have spiritual deficits, then that means that we are not well. It just seems to be a really effective way of 
getting people in touch with who they are and, and being more compassionate towards herself. Kristen Neff does loads of stuff about this on her website. It's an excellent resource. Um, there's loads of really good uh, guided discoveries and those stuff that, that her, her stuff is really focused on developing a more compassionate way of seeing yourself and seeing yourself in the world and if that's not spirituality I don't know what is and the chat amongst the therapists will always be that everybody's knows this other stuff that's really really important to focus on and and is really effective for treating people you know and you don't need a therapist to do this you know it's basically just it's what people have been doing for centuries yeah in Dougie's full interview he talks about volunteering in occupational therapy with Royal Edinburgh Hospital thanks to his talent and love within music and art I know certainly again from my experience and I'm sure you do for your well I know you do for a fact um, you just want to help people with what you've lived in your life so that they don't have to go through the same hardship do you see this time and time again with some of the people that you've been working with and who you've spoken to? The 12 step program, one of the steps is that you give back, you know, basically that it's all about like your well-being and your journey will only be like sort of on the on the right road when you're able to help others. And one of the questions we ask in assessment and every service that I've worked in has been, are you being looked after by anyone? Are you being supported? But also, are you able to support anybody else? Because if you're able to support other people, then that tells you something about how well someone's doing. Because not only does it mean that they feel well enough to basically engage in this, but it also means that they've got something in their life that actually is empowering, gives them agency and is useful. There's a whole positive psychology thing about sort of gratitude. It's one of the things that you can actively practice. And part of gratitude involves like sort of this being able to give of yourself, you know, without feeling or thought about other people because you're grateful for things that people have given you. The danger is basically not looking after yourself while doing that creates a deficit, you know, like you're only giving to others and not looking after yourself. If it can become a healthy thing, then it's a really powerful tool. It's one of the reasons why peer communities, um, the idea of peer support is so effective because people respond better to other people who have got lived experience. They just do. But also a reciprocal community where people see other people giving, it changes them because all of a sudden it says, well, if this person's giving to me, then I must be worth something. I'm worthwhile here. This person's giving to me and they're doing it for, for nothing other than because that's what they do. No, I, I think you've just positioned that so well. I, and I do, I'm starting to learn more about gratitude and trying to practice it more. Um, and I just think it's such a, a beautiful kind of idea in general. Our final voice is Chris, who was in interviewed by Roz. Chris was born in 1966 in Glasgow and grew up in Yorkshire, then returned back to Scotland. And professionally, he is now the Citizenship and Participation Officer for Mental Health Foundation. He struggled with mental health and was in and out of hospital in the 90s. Um, he joined community-based writing groups, including Survivors Poetry Scotland, which helped his mental health and continued to work in these fields to help break the hospital cycle. Um, so let's hear from Chris. So when you first began your work, how was mental health viewed? I think, you know, we are talking about the kind of late 1990s, early 2000s. Um, there were a lot of hospital closures um, and um, within communities that we would generally kind of say had lots of inequalities anyway, um, people were being rehoused. Um, so uh, 
I was, I, I'd lost my tenancies uh, during the times that I w- w- was in hospital. So kind of on discharge, uh, got allocated to council house, local authority housing, uh, in not the best areas of, of, of the city. And that was quite common. Lots of people found themselves in, in those areas. So that did create some tensions within communities because folks would know who the houses were that, that the mad folk got put in. Um, and particularly if there were times where, where in, in that, I was still having some hospital admissions. So there's the mad folk getting taken to hospital in the ambulance. Um, and uh, so coming back from hospital, getting discharged from hospital, back into a community that wasn't your community anyway, you, ha- you don't have a choice about where you got allocated housing and feeling kind of uh, different and stigmatized and then having these kind of experiences where people saw you taken away. Um, was always very very difficult um and but there was kind of a a societal kind of expectation expectation that well actually that's what happens um that's where you get rehoused and of course you're going to be stigmatized you just have to get on with it how often did people um, talk about mental health, their own and, and, and more generally? I kind of had to separate bits of my life. So where I was with folks that hadn't experienced illness um, or uh, had, hadn't experienced hospital admissions, then don't say anything about your mental health. Um, and that was quite difficult where you do have hospital admissions and, you know, I would go to the pub two or three times a week because you don't have a social circle. Uh, So you go to the pub and then, you know, you don't go to the pub for four months and then get discharged and folks go, where have you been? There's very few places that you can go for four months uh, if you're unemployed and living in um, a poorer area of a city. You know, it's kind of, did you go to prison or did you go to a, a psychiatric hospital? <laughs> they, 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 they were kind of, so that was, that, was, that was kind of difficult. So you tried not having conversations in, in those areas about mental health in that sense. And then touching base with um, folks who had been in hospitals, uh, in community-based groups and such, there was a whole different language. We, we, would, we, we would use a, a very kind of uh, clear, mad language and, and would talk about kind of experiences to, together um, that you you just couldn't have elsewhere and working in mental health these days actually I couldn't have very many of those conversations 
today because there's kind of an insider language. First of all, I want to talk about language and how it's changed. Uh, Chris obviously gives examples there about the, some of the language that was used when he was having hospital admissions. Um, you've obviously explored a plethora of learning through conversations and education. How stark has the difference been over the years? Yeah, very different. And, and you know, it's, a, it's another moving field. And I, I think it's one of the things, I mean, I'm, I'm always willing to hold my hand up and say the bits of my job are the bits that, that I would like to be improved, you know, better at. And I'm the sum of my parts. I grew up in the East End of Glasgow. The language that I use to describe things uh, in the main comes from like those places, the people that I mixed with, my family. All that. It's one of those things where it's crucially important that people um, are able to be identified by how they would like. That involves me changing how I perceive language and use language. And it can be tricky. There's more and more events that like we have to, yep, but when you're a therapist, you have to do a, like correctly a certain amount of training every year, you know, like just basic in order to keep your accreditation with your accreditation bodies. And more and more uh there's training and uh being offered about how to discuss things correctly. Now the only reason that there's all those trainings available is because it's clearly an ongoing problem you know the language that people use um to talk about things uh, historically has been poor um and i remember that one of the services that i worked in were very very specific about how they would call people who use the service and it was service users they're not clients even though they were encouraged to call people clients these people aren't clients they aren't basically coming to us and paying for a service and using the service they are service users. We are a service and they use our service. We don't call them patients because they're not patients. They're not ill. You know, they're human beings who are using this service because they have a need to use this service. Very few people um, address themselves as an alcoholic these days. People who have problems with drinking rarely say, I'm an alcoholic. They say, I have a problem with drinking or they say, I don't have a problem with drinking, which is the problem. But nobody wants to be called an alcoholic. But in the past, if you came to a service and you were identified as someone who had a problem with drinking, then you would be called an alcoholic. You wouldn't have a choice in it. And it's the same with things like like Doogie's like, uh, explanation of manic depression, you know? like Manic depression is a really poor name anyway because it sounds like mania is one of the major problems. Mania is the smallest part of bipolar disorder. The problem with, 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 with um, manic depression is people are really, really depressed most of their life. The mania is a relief from the depression. The depression's the thing that's hard to contend with. So uh, historically, things have been called really unhelpful names and people have been called really unhelpful names. And uh, that continues because human beings are human beings. No, 100%. Coming back to the arts, and Chris talked about poetry within his full interview and the importance of the groups that he was part of. It's come up in quite a lot of the conversations, poetry, not just this conversation but a number of them do you think that from an older generation's point of view and you've probably you might have come across this they think that things like that are totally nonsense and that people just they go with the attitude of you need to toughen up or have you been quite surprised by the level of acceptance for it the two things probably coexist at the same time. People, people, people have like a real ambivalence within them. You know, like um, they'll come for. Especially if we're talking about older people, so older me, I feel pretty old these days, Helena. You know, like so, especially like like in the team that I work in in the university, I think I'm the third oldest person in the entire team. You know, so like 
if we're talking about people that I've treated uh, in some way that are like a generation older, you know, so like maybe 60 and above, I think in general, they they hold both those ideas at the same time because they've been brought up with that. That was their experience, you know, it wasn't they talked about. It was basically, you just got on with it. And they'll come to you and say, I should just go on with it. I, I, I should just basically be happier. Eh? I should just be more positive. And I'll like, say to them, well, I don't actually know if that's possible. I don't know if you can just go, I'll be more positive and flick a switch and it comes on. And if we accept that it's okay for people to have this idea, change comes through experience. So like, often it's about saying, well, tell me about this. Like, let's basically just try something that you've not done before because what you've been doing up to this point hasn't really worked. So let's experiment and try some different things. This whole, like, it was really interesting um, in, the, in the clip there. We, we, you get a glimpse of like, sort of writing and narrative work. And like, those are really, really powerful tools in therapy. There's a um, Narrative therapy is a really useful approach and it can be a really effective approach because it's completely non-judgmental and it's the person basically telling their story objectively and not basically being affected by the emotion of it in terms of blame, blaming self or blame others. It's just like, these are the facts, write it down. It can often mean people could step back and have a more compassionate view of what's happened. Now, writing poetry or writing songs or even writing stories that are linked to your life, you know, a way of processing the memories in a, in a, in a more useful or helpful way, it can be a really, really powerful thing. There's, this, there's a, a specific type of therapy that I'm trained in called narrative exposure therapy that we, that we use for, for helping people with trauma. And it was designed in a really simple way so that it doesn't need to be a therapist that's delivering it. It could be because uh, it was designed to be used in uh, refugee camps. So you would, go into a, you would go into a refugee camp and you would train some of the elders to basically do this narrative exposure therapy. And it's just a way of teaching people how to tell their stories that's safe, that keeps them safe, even though they're talking about really traumatic things. And in, and in talking about it in a safe way, in a visual way, because they see things, they see different, they use stones and twigs to, to represent different types of events. And in doing that, it allows people to engage with the memories and, and, and work through them without being affected by the emotions of, of what they've experienced. It allows the emotions to change to something more reflective than feeling present in the moment. And I think like, poetry and writing and art, photography, creating things that represent our experiences of the past, they can all do that if they're nurtured in the right way. Hugh, Dougie and Chris all spark a number of different talking points in this episode. Attitude is one of the main points that's raised when discussing mental health over generations. Whether that be attitude to mental health, attitude to treatment and attitude to incorporating the arts. Whilst empathy and understanding has liberated approaches more, it's still clear to this day that more investment is needed when it comes to health, well-being and support. Progress in this will hopefully see the evolution mirrored as it has done with attitude. This progress and fair access is especially needed when it comes to the class system, geographical placement and gender. It's important to move outside of our own bubbles when it comes to understanding the experiences of others when it comes to mental illness. This also brings the education around what will help different people over generations. With all three testimonials, the arts have been key in their journeys and having the means to explore creativity in different forms, including with Scottish Mental Health Arts Festival, has helped to further this. 
The way that creativity can be incorporated with recovery has clearly given a freedom, an independence, and also a notable means of therapy. Community is a vital part of this and the positives it brings. Ultimately, the arts can be used in a reflective way. They can be, as Sean says, if nurtured in the right way, engage, educate, community, and ultimately help recovery. This podcast has been presented, produced and edited by me, Helena Rafai, for the Mental Health Foundation, with music by Lucy Parnell. The Reclaiming Our Heritage project is funded by a number of donors, including an Our Heritage grant from the National Lottery Heritage Fund.